Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome once again to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens. I'm Josh Downs and today's episode is episode 50. We're going to be taking a look at Revelations chapters 1 through 5 under the theme, Glory and Power Be Unto the Lamb Forever. Now, if you're like me, you're going to probably be a little intimidated by the book of Revelations, <laughs> and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of other podcasts that are out there that are going to go into a lot of great depth and will analyze all the symbols that are in there and, and try to help us understand them in context of the culture back then. And it can be a very overwhelming book, to say the least, which is why I like to focus on the simple things. And so that's exactly what we're going to do today. Um and I'm super excited to share this episode in particular with you because one of maybe, oh, I don't know, one of the top five principles that I've come to love is taught very powerfully within these chapters. In fact, there's several of them. I, there's so many principles I love, but there is one in particular that I really had a personal experience with that has helped shape my life tremendously. And I'm excited to help you to see that as well as we go through this. And it has a lot to do with questions. Have you ever had questions about things in your life that you wish you could ask God for the answers for? <laughs> I I know that you have. I know I certainly have. Questions typically that center around why certain things have happened, right? Why did this happen or why did that happen? If you haven't had any of those, you will. I promise you, you will. Questions for me personally that I've wondered about that I would love to just sit down with God and say, okay, Heavenly Father, help me to understand why this needed to happen in my life. Or, or just to those that I love, really. One was why my father was allowed to be in a car accident when he was on his mission. I mean, there he is serving a mission for the Lord, doing the best that he can, and, and he's allowed to get in this accident, an accident where a lady in trying to pass another car crosses over a double line and ends up hitting them head on, taking away his ability to really run and jump and play athletics, which he had excelled at and was looking to even play professionally in baseball really for the rest of his life. It's never been the same. He's had so many health issues ever since then. Now... Other questions that I've had that have been more related to my life would be things like why I needed to go through divorce, um, why I needed to have a, a very difficult surgery, an incident when I was a senior in high school that kept me from playing athletics and uh, the basketball um, season that year that I had been working so hard for to get to. Um, those are just a few that are at the top of my list. Or really just in general, why so many bad things have happened to so many really good people. There have been so many other hard things that I've gone through besides just my divorce and, and that particular surgery when I was young that I know I would really love to get clarification on, answers to, and a better understanding of what was the purpose behind them. Really, why? Why did I need to go through those things? Well, there are a few powerful thoughts from these chapters today that while they may not answer all of those kinds of questions that we have, they absolutely can help us to better understand God's plan for us and trust that one day those answers will come. 
and until then can help us to be patient and just wait until we're able to sit down with Heavenly Father and have Him answer those questions. Now, the background of, of these chapters is as follow. Have you ever struggled to express to others what you felt during a powerful spiritual experience? Everyday language can feel inadequate to describe spiritual feelings and impressions. Perhaps that is why John used such rich symbolism and imagery to describe his majestic revelation. He could have simply stated that he saw Jesus Christ, but to help us understand his experience, he described the Savior using words like these. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His, uh, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. As you read the book of Revelation, try to discover the messages John wanted you to learn and feel, even if you don't understand the meaning behind every symbol. Why might he have compared church congregations to candlesticks, Satan to a dragon, and Jesus Christ to a lamb? Ultimately, you don't have to understand every symbol in Revelation to understand its important themes, including its most prominent theme, that Jesus Christ and his followers will triumph over the kingdom of men and of Satan. And I love that last statement in particular. That really is one of the central messages of the book of Revelations, is that no matter how hard things get, Christ will come out on top and those that follow him. So, to start out today, here are a few key principles from this week's reading. And again, there are so many to look for, in, and I love the counsel and advice that's given in the background to just, just pay attention to the symbols and just think to yourself, okay, what might John be trying to describe in, in these? And maybe we'll catch a little bit of a glimpse into the meaning behind them as we do. And it's not necessarily important to understand every single symbol. There are many that I still don't understand, having studied it multiple times, and that's okay. For the first principle I want to take a look at today, let's go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, where John points this out. Just a simple statement I'd encourage you to mark. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. I love that statement as a reminder of the kind of relationship that we're meant to have with Christ. Obviously, he is referencing to these saints. He gets through complimenting them on a lot of the good that they've done, but then he also begins to point out that they are in danger of falling away from Christ if they don't continue to do the things that are necessary to keep them close to him. And I think there's great value in really the metaphor that he's trying to paint here for them, that in a lot of ways, the relationship that we have with Christ is like the relationships that we have with others, even romantic ones. And when you think about it, what is it that causes a breakup between two people that have been dating each other, that have been getting to know each other, and, and have been coming to care for each other? Well, it's the hard things that they go through, isn't it? Or times where they just don't get along, or they allow enough things to happen where they fall out of love. Maybe they begin to move in different directions, or there's a lack of communication. Where they don't spend time together anymore and they just simply grow apart. Sometimes there's infidelity at not being true and loyal to the other person that can cause that, and many other things. And I think the value of recognizing that is that many of those things are the same way that we follow away from the Lord, that we begin to do damage to our relationship with Him. Because we are in a relationship with the Lord. As the scriptures say, we love Him because He first loved us. But like with any relationship, it takes work, it takes communication, it takes effort. 
And the same things that can destroy a relationship on earth are the very things that can destroy our relationship with him in heaven. When things get hard, that's really when we find out just how much love we have for him. In the world, we see some really poor examples of love in things like The Bachelor or Bachelorette that are very superficial in nature. That's not real life and that's not real love. I once knew a state president in Arizona that every day as a part of his daily routine, he would wake up and he would put his wife's makeup on her for her because she couldn't do it herself, being blinded from an accident that she had had years earlier. Now that's real love. And that's the kind of love that you won't see on TV, but it's the kind of love that has real depth to it. It's not the superficial kind that we see on TV. Many of Christ's disciples were drawn to him when things were good and easy. But once things got hard, it became more clear where their hearts really were and how much they really loved him. And young people, that's a great metaphor for weighing those relationships and the love that comes into your life through others. It's easy to love people when things are great and new and exciting. But when things get hard, that's where you'll really see and find where true love is best found. When going through some of those hard things, many of Christ's disciples left him. In fact, at one point, after teaching it some very difficult doctrines, hard truths that really didn't make sense to many at the time, while watching several of his disciples leave because of this difficult teaching and hard-to-understand truth, he found himself asking some of his other disciples a very poignant question, which was just simply, will ye also go away? And that is a question that each of us will answer one day for ourselves when we also face something that is hard and maybe that we don't fully understand. Something that can maybe cause us to be confused and upset with the Lord and leads us to ask like others have, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Or, O oh God, where art thou? Why would you let this happen? Don't you love me? I can almost hear Christ asking each one of us when something hard happens to us. You lose your job. You struggle with your health. You go through a divorce. You can't have children. Your child or spouse dies. The prophet teaches something that's hard to understand. Will ye also go away? Young people, it's my hope that you will resolve to never leave your first love. Yes, we might get confused, we might get upset, maybe even a little angry at some of the things we experience in life, but let's commit and devote ourselves here and now to never let anything too hard separate us from Christ, separate us from God. Let's make sure we always choose faith over fear and commit to always be willing to submit to whatever it is that God sees fit to allow or inflict upon us and keep that relationship strong. Make the time for that relationship to grow. Some questions that I think would be well to consider might be something along the lines of maybe contemplating a little bit further. Why does the Lord refer to our relationship with him almost as a romantic one? referring to that relationship as uh, our first love, or you've heard probably him referred to as the bridegroom or the, the husband or attending the marriage feast. Why go to that depth of love to describe that relationship? What does he want us to learn from these comparisons about our relationship with him? 
Most importantly, how can we develop a stronger, more committed relationship to him and with him? And what has caused you at times to maybe leave your first love a little? What has been something that's been hard that you've gone through that has caused you to question God's love for you? I think that's a very normal uh, a normal thing to do and experience when we go through hard things. What are some of the things that can help a person to stay true and faithful to the Lord and to their relationship with Him regardless of what comes at them in life? Why is it so important to develop this relationship before the hard things come and the hard things happen? And where is your relationship at currently with the Lord? That might be one of the most important questions to ask. And then upon answering that, what can you do to develop it more deeply, to become more committed to Him, to love Him in the same way that He loves you? In today's day and time, we need not be prepared to die for Him, like maybe some were and and experienced in times past. Our task then becomes to be willing to live for Him, to do the things that He's asked us to do, to represent Him well to others, and to strive to become like Him in word, thought, and deed. Now for the second principle, we're going to take a look at Revelations chapter 3, verse 20. And again, it's another great one. The Savior points out here through these writings a very important truth that is important for us to understand. When he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, there's a lot of great symbolism in the book of Revelations, a lot of really deep things and intellectual things. But again, I'm a lot more simple. I like things that are easy to understand, that are plain. And this is one of the greatest symbols I think that we can see here in the book of Revelations because it is very plain and it is very straightforward. All of you, or most of you, are probably familiar with a picture, a painting. You've seen it in some form or another portrayed of Christ standing outside of a door and in the act of knocking on it almost as if he is just waiting for it to be answered. Reminds me of a song. I think that the message behind this reminds me of a song that uh, is called Know This, Every Soul is Free. And it's one of our, our hymns, and it goes like this. To choose his life and what he'll be, for this eternal truth is given, that God will force no man to heaven. He'll call, persuade, direct aright, and bless with wisdom, love, and light, In nameless ways, be good and kind, but never force the human mind. Freedom and reason make us men. Take these away, what are we then? Mere animals, and just as well, the beast may think of heaven or hell. May we no more our power abuse, but ways of truth and goodness choose. Our God is pleased when we improve his grace and seek his perfect love. The message there is pretty simple, that God will not force his way into the human heart or into the human mind, but he will knock and he will wait and he will be there always patiently waiting for the door to be opened to him. And that's a powerful image and lesson. Young people, I want you to understand that God will not force his way into your life. He wants to be chosen, just like anybody in a relationship would want to be chosen. And so he'll wait for you to make the first move to draw near to him so he can draw near to you. We literally hold the key to letting him into our lives and into developing that relationship more deeply. 
he'll knock. Sometimes he may knock a little loudly just to make sure that we hear that he's there. But regardless, he'll never force that door to open. He'll patiently wait outside until we open the door to him. And once we do, well, he won't hesitate to come right in and, as the scriptures say, sup with us and us with him. In other words, he'll join us in all that we're doing and experiencing and help us with all of it. When we open our hearts and our doors to him, he opens our hearts and lives to everything else, especially those things that are good. Now, a couple key questions for you to consider about this simple principle. Why do you think it is that God will not force his way into our lives? He certainly could. How is that showing love by not forcing his way in? How have you personally felt him knocking on your door at times? What are some of the things that you and I could do better to open that door to him and our lives to him? And what does this principle teach about codependency and enabling? And I bring that up because I think that's something that you need to learn to understand at a very young age. There's a deep thought there about one of the reasons why God allows us to do things for ourselves and in many ways waits for us to do them. And why do you think it is that he'll allow us to suffer when we refuse to open the door to him? And what role does suffering sometimes play in getting us to open that door? Now for the last principle today, I want to go to Revelations chapter 5 verse 1 where John points out that he sees something. And what he sees, I believe, is very significant and teaches a very powerful principle about God that every single one of us needs to understand, but I want you to understand as a young person as soon as you can possibly understand because it will help shape a lot of what you do and the way you experience the things that happen to you in life and the way you see them. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, John, John says that I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, in other words, God, a book that was written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, Joseph Smith came across that in his translation, and he couldn't help but wonder what was the book that John saw? What kind of book was it? What was in it? What was it all about? There are a couple great spots throughout the Doctrine and Covenants where Joseph receives revelation about the book of Revelations and a little bit of an explanation of what some of those things are. One of the most uh, powerful sections is verse or section 77 where Joseph actually has a Q&A with God about some of those symbols that he has come across in his study of the book of Revelations. And it's a great resource to help us come to learn and understand them a little bit better. But in verse 6 of section 77, in fact, I would write that as a cross-reference next to chapter 5, verse 1. It's probably actually in your footnotes as well. You could just mark it. But in Doctrine and Covenants section 77, verse 6, Joseph asks that question about the book and what it is. It reads in verse 6, What are we to understand by the book which John saw, which was sealed on the back with seven seals? God an- God's answer is that we are to understand that it contains the revealed will, mysteries, and the works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning this earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance, or its temporal existence. In other words, it contains everything about what happens and what has happened and will happen in earth's history. 
in everything that happened, his, his works, the, the mysteries, the hidden things, all those things are contained in that book. And it's referred to as the book of life for that reason. And one of the things that I want to point out that John notices about this book that I think is worth recognizing back in Revelations chapter 5, verse 1, is that he saw that there was writing within and on the backside. Now, what does that indicate about a book? If the book has writing within it, really all the way to the back of it or the backside, what does that state about the condition of the book? Is it still being written or is it finished? It seems to indicate that it's already been written. It's completed. It's been written on the inside all the way to the backside. Well, one of the, the questions that then could be asked is, how could that be? How could it be already written in that book if it hasn't happened yet, is what some might say. Which leads us to be reminded of a very important doctrine and truth, one that I will not hesitate to mention again and again and again till it sinks into each and every one of our hearts. And that is that God knows all things. He knows everything. But does he really? I remember having a discussion with somebody once who left the church uh, and was a former missionary even who seemed to forget that doctrine and truth. I was shocked that he'd forgotten this basic truth. He felt that God was more able to understand everything and then compensate for things that maybe happen or that we do. But he didn't necessarily believe that God literally knew everything and knows everything. Uh, many times in mentioning this with my students in seminary, they would ask me questions about that. Like, Brother Downs, does Heavenly Father really know everything? Like, does he know what I'm going to do before I do it? Does he Does he know who's going to win the, the basketball game tonight or the football game tonight? And without a doubt, every time, yes. Yes, he does. You mean, Brother Downs, Heavenly Father knows that I was going to do this? And then they'd shake or, or do a little dance or make a sound, blah, 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 blah. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, he did. He knew you were going to do that. And it would just kind of blow their, their minds a little bit. And it is a little difficult to think about and recognize. But there really is no other way to look at it. When you have scriptures like this in 2 Nephi 2.24 that says, All things are done in wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Or in 2 Nephi 9.20 and Mormon 8.17 that says things like, God knows all things. There's not anything except he knows it. <laughs> you can't get any more clear than that. Or Moroni 7.22, God knows all things from everlasting to everlasting. And if you want evidence, if you want examples of this, here's a couple great ones. If you remember, Nephi in writing his writings didn't fully understand why he was kind of rewriting a lot of what his father had already written. It would make sense to maybe pick up where his father left off and begin his writings there. But for some reason, he said, I just feel impressed to write about some of the things that have already happened from my perspective. All he would mention is, I don't know why, but it's for a wise purpose, that the Spirit is whispering to me to do this. I don't understand why, but I'm going to do it. Mormon had the same kind of experience, mentioning things like, I don't know why I feel so impressed to put Nephi's record with the gold plates. His father, Lehi, had already written a lot of it, but there's a lot of great things in there. And I, I don't know. Again, I do this for a wise purpose. Well, what was that purpose? Why did they feel impressed to do that? Was it just coincidence? No. In fact, God was fixing a mistake 
that was going to be made about 2,000 years in the future. God knew that Joseph was going to make a mistake and lose the 116 pages roughly 2,000 years before he did it. Isn't that incredible to think about? That's what it means when the scriptures say God knows all things. He really does. Another example is that God knew that Nephi and his brothers, Laman and Lemuel and Sam, that they'd need wives in the promised land. And so he sent them to get Ishmael's family, who just happened to have not four, but five unmarried daughters. Nephi, Laman, Lemuel, Sam, and who else? Well, Zoram was with them as well. He ended up going on the journey to the promised land, kind of last minute, right? When they went to go get the plates and took him with them. God knew that Zoram would be leaving with them long before he ever did and even provided a daughter for him to marry within Ishmael's family. Is God good at what he is doing? Yes, he is good. Why? Well, one of the things is because he knows all things, which is why it is absolutely impossible to frustrate his plan. This time of the year, as we get close to celebrating Christmas, I love the Christmas star just for that reason. It testifies in many ways to God's ability to know all things. Elder Maxwell pointed out the significance of that star and that it had to shine at just the right time and at just the right moment to announce the Savior's birth. Think about how long in advance that star must have been put in motion for it to shine the way that it did at just the right moment and on just the right night. I don't know if you've looked at how stars are formed, but they can take anywhere from tens of thousands to even millions of years to form. He is beyond, God is beyond just precise in his timing. He is, there's not even a word to describe how good he is because of his foreknowledge and his ability to know all things. And you know what? He will be that way for you and I. Things will come into our lives at just the right time and just the right way for you. We just need to trust him. Remember the Nephites were about to be killed for believing in Christ if the sign of his birth didn't happen. And it just so happened that it happened on the very night that they were to be put to death. Is that a coincidence? (laughs) You will never convince me that it is. Can you begin to see how good God is and why we should and can have faith in him? I want you to please, please, please understand this and think about what that means for you. There really never is a reason to fear because any problem, situation, or challenge that you face has been foreseen and prepared for long before you even came here. As one of the the great examples that I've come across in my own life, I've always had lots of questions that I wanted to ask the Lord. And one of those that was just kind of a way down on my list, but was always had me a little curious and confused as to why it was, is that growing up, for whatever reason, I always had this weird affinity for frogs and snakes, for anything reptile-like. Dinosaurs were like my all-time favorite thing. And growing up, there was a farm that my family had that we would go visit quite a bit. And on one end of this farm was a canal that ran kind of right through the property, pretty good size canal, um, one that was certainly big enough for multiple inner tubes to to be floated uh, down on. And and that was one of our favorite activities that we'd always do. We'd go play in it and just have a great time in it. There was a rope swing. 
But one of my most favorite activities with that canal and, and with that farm was to walk up and down the banks of that canal looking for frogs and snakes. And then I try to catch them. And I got good at it. And I mean good at it. Now, snakes aren't terribly hard to catch. You just kind of grab them. And uh, they can be a little quick. But if you know what you're doing, you, you grab them quickly. And now frogs, on the other hand, those were the, the prize. Those were tough to catch. I'd walk in that water and, and I'd be looking on the banks and I would see just a little frog head poking up through some of the, the, the cut grass or the weeds or the lilies that were in it. And I'd have to get in just the right position, actually get behind it, because they're a little bit like flies in that they jump backwards before they shoot forward. And so I get right behind them, and then boom, I would go and grab them just a little bit behind them. And sure enough, they would jump back into my hands every time. I got good at it. And the thing that I remember doing, everyone must have thought I was so weird because while my other cousins were out playing baseball and other sporting events, there I was going up and down that canal looking for frogs and snakes. And without fail, I'd always bring a big bucket to the, the table where all of my extended family were typically gathered having uh, lunch or dinner. And uh, in that bucket were always either snakes or frogs. I never put them together because <laughs> I learned that that didn't work so well. Um, and I go show them, hey, mom and dad, look what I caught. And I Looking back, I'm, I'm sure they were a little embarrassed. Like, oh, there's there's our son. Yeah, good for you, son. That's great. You got some more frogs and snakes in there. Now, I want you to go put them back and come join us for dinner. Um, I remember thinking for years, it was always kind of weird because I grew out of that phase. Once I got to high school and the age most of you are in, I, yeah, I got into sports and into girls and those kind of things. And I always thought, yeah, it was so weird. That I had such, it wasn't just your average kind of love for reptiles or frogs and snakes. I was almost obsessed with them. It was a passion of mine. I'd never miss an opportunity to try to catch them, and I just loved it. Well, years later, fast forward years later, I'm teaching seminary, going through getting ready to prepare this very lesson, and I read about this book, and I come to understand what it is, and that it has you know, everything that has ever been wondered about life in it. And, and how amazing would it be to sit down and, and just have that conversation with God and ask him, Heavenly Father, can you help me understand why this happened in my life or in the world or this and that? And, and have him just say, oh yeah, let me, let me turn to that page and kind of show you. And as I'm thinking of that, I thought, boy, that would be amazing to have that experience. I wonder what I would ask him. For, every, for whatever reason, that was one of the uh, first questions that popped in my head is, oh, no, I'd ask him why I, it was that I love frogs and snakes so much. And then, I, I'm not kidding, it is almost like time stopped. And all of a sudden, a part of that book was open to me. And I was given the answer. And I'd never made the connection before. But on one occasion, when I was walking up and down that bank, I remember hearing a large splash. And I thought, oh boy, this is a gold mine. This is sound like the biggest frog I've, I've ever seen. I can't wait to catch this one. I look over to it from where that splash came from. And it wasn't a frog or a snake. It was my cousin Landon. He was face down in the middle of the canal. Couldn't have been more than three or four years old. Just kind of flailing around. And I was really taken back. I was shocked by it. In fact, I looked around to see if somebody was going to do something about it, but nobody was around. They were all back, way back to the where the farmhouse was, you know, having dinner and socializing. And so 
I acted as quick as I could. I, I ran over there. I jumped in the water. I turned him over as he started coughing up, you know, water that he had been drinking in from being face down. Went over and pulled him over to the side of the canal and started it to get him up on the bank and then just called for help. To which his mom came over running. And once she recognized what had happened, she was pretty distraught uh, by it. That was always a fear of ours is that with that canal there, at some point somebody may walk over and fall in, especially one of the little ones that was there. That's exactly what happened with Landon. And as I reflected on that, it was almost, <laughs> it's hard for me to even talk about because uh, it was it was such a profound experience in being in having that connection made for me. But it was almost as if God opened that book and said, let me just give you a peek. Here's one of the reasons why one of the answers maybe that you had been wondering about some of those things in your life, although it was just a little thing, I was curious about it. The answer came through to me like lightning because it applied to so much more than just that situation. But I felt God say to me, that's the reason why you were born with this affinity, this weird affinity for frogs and snakes. I needed you to be on the bank of that canal at just that moment to be able to save your cousin Landon who still had a, much of his life yet to live who still needed to serve a mission and later get married in the temple and raise a righteous family that was an experience that I'll never forget and a connection that I don't think I ever would have made had I not come across this verse in Revelations and ask that question myself. I wonder why that happened to me or why I was like that and gave God the opportunity and space to answer it. Now, there's a million other questions I have that I would love answers to as well, but I'm confident that each and every one of us, and I know you have them too, but I'm confident that each and every one of us one day will have that opportunity to sit down with him and have him pull out that book of life and he'll allow us to ask those questions so that he can give us the answers. And I really believe that when that day and time comes, that most of our answers will probably be along the lines of, huh, I hadn't thought of that before. Or, hmm, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but until then, ah, we wrestle and we struggle with understanding why life goes the way that it does or why certain things happen the way that they do. But I love the thought and the truth and the doctrine that God knows all and that he is aware of everything that is going on and that there is nothing that could happen to us that he hasn't already foreseen and if necessary prepared something for. That's what he does. He is not one to act reactively, but he acts proactively because of his omniscience and his foreknowledge of all things. Believe me, one day God will answer all of your questions that you have about why. Until then, it's our job and opportunity to just trust, to have faith, and to be patient that there's reasons and purposes and that one day the answers will come. Now, a couple key questions for you to, to think about and to consider one is, what do you love most about this principle? Like I said, it has become one of my most cherished ones. 
Why is it so important and helpful to remember and know that God knows all things? Is it helpful to you to know that one day you will get all of your questions answered? What do you need to do until then? From this principle, why do we never really need to fear? And how have you seen this principle in your own life? Have there been times and ways where maybe God has opened up that book of life and given you a little bit of a glimpse into some of the reasons why things have happened in your life? Elder Bednar taught that the Lord's tender mercies are often best seen due to their timing. So I would invite you to consider how has the Lord showed up for you or others in your life in just the right time and way? And what does that teach and remind you of concerning his foreknowledge and his omniscience? And maybe lastly is how can you better learn to be patient and to have the the rest of your questions answered in the Lord's time and in the Lord's way? I hope that's been helpful. Again, you're not going to get a lot of deep symbolism and explanations and cultural you know, things from back in ancient times to help it with your understanding of the book of Revelations, but you will get some very simple and plain and wonderful truths, doctrines, and principles from me. Um, but I also know that you'll get them from your own study as you jump into this book and just look not for those things that you can't understand, but look for those things that you can understand and trust that God will open your understanding to you in just the right time and just the right way for just what you need. That is my faith. That is my testimony, young people. Please know that nothing can happen in your life that he hasn't foreseen. That should give you great comfort and great peace and great strength to know that he's already provided the way for you. And in many ways, isn't that the message that he has passed on to us through his son, Jesus Christ? If none of us were going to sin, there wouldn't have been a need for the Savior to come down. So clearly God must have foreseen that you and I would make mistakes and recognize that we would need to be rescued from them, which is why he provided his son. As always, remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful whose life most closely approaches his son and the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The true test of greatness, of blessedness, of joyfulness is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life. And he invites us all to come follow me. So as always, my invitation is let's follow him better this week and become better as we follow him. That's my hope and prayer for you. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Until next time, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens and for Parents of Teens.